The Greens are launching an all-out assault on the state election. Jackie Trad was the deputy leader of the Labor Party, was seen as one of the key political figures in Queensland politics. In within six months' time, we've built the biggest campaign in the Queensland Greens' history. So you've defeated a deputy premier, a power broker, one of the most well-known people in state politics. I think in the end we had about 35,000 of these one-on-one conversations. You want to quadruple the mining royalties for mining companies. I mean, it's just ludicrous. Where do you get that policy from? It was more successful than I think we'd anticipated because we didn't think we could trick the mining industry into attacking us. Our win here in South Brisbane has been the result of a massive ground campaign with hundreds of volunteers out on the ground over the last few months. They want to know how to win. People just desperately want to know how to fucking win. She got all teary and now she's voting for the Greens and I'm teary and I'm really excited. Hello and welcome back to Blueprints, a podcast about political strategies from one of 200. Our last episode was about the Green Party's win in New Zealand's Auckland Central, as Chloe Swarbrick became the Greens' first ever MP in the area in October 2020. But almost the same time last year, there was another Green Party doing pretty much the same thing, except this one was in Queensland, Australia, as Amy McMahon became MP for South Brisbane in last year's state election. There were a lot of interesting similarities between the two campaigns, but also some important differences, which is why they're interesting to compare one after the other and help show there's not just one way to win an election campaign. The Queensland Greens are running a left populist strategy and attempting to build a cross-class coalition to take on the mining industry and the establishment Labour and Liberal parties, who they say stand in the way of transformative progress. The South Brisbane win was just one part of a much broader political strategy for the Queensland Greens in which they plan over the next 10 to 15 years to build towards holding the balance of power in the state parliament. And so the story of Amy McMahon's win really starts back in 2016 when they won a local council seat in the same area. To talk us through their strategy and trying to build this movement, we spoke with Queensland state strategist for the Greens, Max Chandler-Mather, and the campaign manager for Amy McMahon's win, Liam Flannery. Here's Max starting the story from that 2016 win. Sort of, I suppose, all started with Councillor Jonathan Sree's campaign that I managed in. We started managing in 2015, but we won in 2016. I always, this is an anecdote, Liam's probably heard sick of me saying, but Jono's first door knock in 2015 started with two, three people. It was me, Jono, and another volunteer, and I had screwed up like setting up the walk lists for the door knock. All of them were wrong. We couldn't actually door knock. And then it Brisbane summer storm broke and we abandoned it. And Jono spent the, uh, like the rest of the afternoon over beers asking me if I knew what I was doing. The answer to which was no. And out of that, in, within six months' time, we'd built the biggest campaign in the Queensland Greens history. But it's been a very natural evolution. And it started off with this sort of concept of a right to the city, which was that essentially people might perform lots of different roles in the city, but actually there's some common material interest as a result of living, working and growing up in an urban environment where sort of capital accumulation occurs via property development and finance in particular. 
And as a result, you know, the city almost functions like a factory floor in a sort of modern way. And that we could essentially harness that potential for encouraging people to recognize a common material interest in organizing together around a politics based on, you know, public space and building public housing and reclaiming the way that the city functions away from finance and property developers and put it towards the common good and ensure that that common good was recognized as any, anyone from the, you know, homeless people that live within South Brisbane who need a home all the way up um, to sort of middle, in, middle income or um, middle class people in uh, the wealthier sections of the electorate. And that campaign was really based on, you know, Jono's already substantial popularity within that area, which was fantastic and really useful. And his sort of dynamism in terms of just sort of getting around and being involved in lots of projects, but it was premised around one-on-one conversations and door knocking. And, you know, we got to the end of that campaign and we weren't, all of us were new. Like I'd never run a campaign before. I'd done union organizing in the past or organized on university campuses, but we'd never really done anything like this before. And we won really quite unexpectedly in a way. We got a 14% swing to us in an electorate of about 30,000 people. So it was a huge, it was probably the, one of the biggest swings the Queensland Greens ever got and Jono won. And out of that, we just built this confidence, I suppose, and that, you know, wins are really important for just demonstrating that actions that you take can have a material effect on the world, which often I think for progressive movements on the left is a novel experience. And <laughs> that actually, I, I think what that did was just sort of crystallise for us that this was a strategy that worked. But I think the next question we asked was, well, what are our ambitions because the people reasonably ask, well, it's all well and good to win one or two seats in a council election or, or even a state or, or a federal election. But now that we've worked out the model that we're relatively confident works in terms of winning seats, wh- where do you go from here and how do you build power and how do you learn the lessons from failed progressive movements in the past that have progressed much further than us, say, Syriza or Podemos in terms of winning electoral power but not winning power in society? And so we thought that actually both had to occur in tandem, that we needed to be able to build a progressive movement and a mass party within the Queensland Greens, you know, based around political education and training people how to talk about politics and relate to people's material lives, progressively scale as we win more and more seats and ensure that once we get to that point that both sections of the organisation, both in terms of its politically educated growing mass membership as well as winning seats and that development occurred in tandem with each other. And from there, there's just been an evolution. We've gotten better at organizing people. We've gotten better at training people. We've gotten better at recruiting new people into the movement. We've gotten better at having a one-on-one political conversations. It began with a core group of people, you know, based around South Brisbane, but it, it began to encompass sort of people from across Brisbane and North Queensland, individuals essentially involved in leadership positions within the Queensland Greens who saw our early success and to their credit, were very open-mindedly substantially shifted the strategy and politics of the entire Queensland Greens and organisation. And without their support, these sort of people in these senior leadership positions, there's no way we would have been able to achieve what we have done in terms of being able to roll out this as a political uh, and organisational strategy. And so with this core of people eager to build on an interesting early success and with some backing from the party leadership, they look for something bigger than Jonathan Sui's Gabba Council Ward. Naturally, that was an electorate seat. And in 2017's election, they chose South Brisbane. Because Jono and I 
had, we just won the GAB award, which essentially covers the same, very similar, it's almost identical in terms of geographical area and number of voters and the electorate of state electorate of South Brisbane, which is for uh, Queensland state parliament takes in the same geographical area. And so Jono and I were like, well, we think we've got a good shot at winning this. If not uh, this election, then at least uh, very soon. And so we sort of went around looking for a candidate and we found Amy McMahon, who was brilliant. Uh, and she said yes, on the condition that I managed her campaign. And who were they running against? Well, and just like in our last episode, when Chloe Swarbrick went up against Nikki Kay, one of the National Party's leading figures, the choice of South Brisbane was quite a provocative one because the incumbent MP was Labour's Jackie Trad. We have to say, like, um, Jackie Trad was the deputy leader of the Labour Party, was the treasurer and was seen as one of the key political figures in Queensland politics. She was also deputy premier of the state and was a leader of Labour's so-called left faction. For those of you not familiar with Australian politics, there isn't enough time to explain why this doesn't really mean what it sounds like. Safe to say, she's not really that left wing, but she was a big, big name. And most people thought that Max, Amy and the Greens were wasting their time. We'll talk more about Amy as a candidate a little bit later on, but this campaign in 2017 is where Liam comes in. Max headhunted me uh, and recruited me for the field organiser type position for the previous Amy run in 2017. So I was one of the main people driving the sort of the door knocking campaign in 2017. Well, unless there's a landslide, senior government ministers are usually safe come election time. But Queensland's deputy premier is in the fight of her political life. On paper, Jackie Trad's South Brisbane electorate is safe. But the Greens are increasingly confident they can snatch it away. Amy McMahon could just be the first Greens member of state parliament. But first, she has to topple the deputy premier, Jackie Trad. The big parties know that we Greens are coming for South Brisbane. The 455 vote margin is based on council election results that delivered the first Greens councillor in the same neighbourhood. They say every 20 minutes of door knocking delivers a new vote for the party. If that's true, they'll have their votes by this time Friday. We did really well. We got a 12% swing to the Greens. We didn't get over the line and that sort of laid the foundation and we're actually quite lucky. I, I say this to Liam quite a bit. Like we, we lucked into it. Like we just ran into a group <laughs> of people who mm. wanted to win and saw that we'd won and were open-minded about forgetting or relearning a lot of things about politics and organisation that they had before. And so coming into 2020, I sort of stepped up to just to do the state strategist role, which was essentially directing the strategy, drafting the platform overall for the campaign. I came on as the campaign manager for the South Brisbane seat itself. Um, and I guess the backstory there is that when we were thinking about how we're going to do, you know, the South Brisbane campaign, Amy, myself, Max, and, and I guess Nicole as well, who's one of our um, key sort of strategists and digital strategists in particular, sort of worked out that it would make sense for me to be running the, the South Brisbane campaign with Max and Nicole in the more central roles of the, the, of the state party itself. So to recap, this is a pretty experienced group of younger campaigners. There was the 2016 council election when John O'Sree won, then Amy's first go at South Brisbane in 2017, which they didn't win but came way closer than anyone thought. Then Max himself actually ran for the federal parliament in 2019 in the seat of Griffith, and it was the same story. No win, but big positive swing. It seems, from the outside, like a natural progression. 
from one to the next to the next, but every moment still requires some kind of analysis. And here, there were three key things that they identified as objectively true and that were in their favor. The area's demographics, the state of the opposition, and their political mood at the time. Here's Liam. So the South Brisbane area is is trending ever more towards a renter-dominated um, area, which, you know, the analysis backs up the fact that renters are largely skewed to like to skew towards the greens or at least that's our sort of social base particularly young people and particularly renters we felt that after the 2017 campaign people were like you guys are mad like there's no way you're going to be able to beat her and we came very close and then this time around we we did feel like they were going to put up a lot of a fight this time because this was her career on the line we felt at least that there was something of a demoralization and a, and a kind of degeneration of the Labor Party's capacity in the area, particularly in the inner city. I think because of years of being a party that didn't need to campaign in these areas in particular, that was this was a safe seat for Labor, so they were never really particularly trained in having the hard fight in that area. And also because it was such an uninspiring platform, they weren't gaining, you know, new, young, good talent in droves and so we felt like after 2017 we we dealt a bit of a hammer blow to them like we thought we had a very good shot um, of winning the seat just based on the what we'd seen from them since they didn't seem to have learnt their lesson about why they were going backwards in their vote i think the property development in the area also the like there's some incredibly egregious development in the area that most residents are pretty pissed off about and have been for some time and that just kept going and so for us it was like we have to win this time. <laughs> this is this was we're staking a bit of a, you know, our honor on it in a way. So regardless, we had to we had to have a tilt at it. The Greens are launching an all-out assault on the state election. Jackie Trad's key rival is again standing for the seat of South Brisbane, putting the deputy premier in the fight of her political life. Amy McMahon came so close to victory at the last state election. We have achieved an incredible swing statewide. This time, she's determined not to let the seat of South Brisbane slip away. We're going to be running a huge grassroots campaign with thousands of volunteers online and on the phones. In 2017, the social worker was just 458 primary votes behind the Deputy Premier. It's interesting to interrogate whether this is an objective or subjective condition, but just uh, pressing home on that concept that Liam pointed out that post-2017, there was a significant demoralisation in the Labor Party organisation. And I think it was because it was a bit of an existential shock, because in the lead up to that election in 2017, as Liam said, there was this logic within the media, certainly within the sort of political establishment of the Labor Party and even the LNP, that it was inconceivable that insurgent upstart campaign could come close or even unseat the deputy premier of the state within essentially a seat that Labor had only lost once sort of in the past hundred years or something like I think, that. Yeah, I think it's only been in, in control of another party three times in the last century. It's been Labor the rest of the way. So Yeah, and so on election night, we jokingly called Jackie Trad's speech on 2017 her um, concession speech which actually was just a 10-minute bitter tirade against the Greens when we just got, you know, essentially given her the shock of her life. But let me say this. The Greens political party were putting forward a very, very aggressive campaign in this seat of South Brisbane. They threw everything at it. And let's be clear, they threw everything at it. That's right. Fly in, fly out. 
Bus in, bus out. Members of the Greens political party come to South Brisbane to campaign against Labor and particularly campaign against me. Like, you know, Jackie could have taken this moment to say, oh, thank you so much for the issues that the Greens raised. Like if she was a clever politician, she could have taken that moment as a learning moment for her and really screwed us by just if she had been this open hearted like, oh, the issues you raised were real and I've got things to learn from the electorate, blah, blah, blah. But instead it was just bitter angriness. Uh, and I think going into 2020, we felt the development in particular, a couple of really crucial projects, the West Village project, which was one that in the lead up to 2017, Jackie Trad had used her power as planning minister to what's called called in. So essentially take this project outside of the usual planning process. And everyone in the community thought when she did that, that she was going to stop it. She did the opposite. She actually approved it and then added like 10 stories to two towers. And that in many ways broke the back of a lot of support in the community. And then her support of the Adani project, that massive coal mine um, north of the state. Again, she ended up actually facilitating as treasurer favorable government loans for the project and actually ended up probably helping to accelerate or make it more likely as opposed to stop it. And those two projects in particular were particularly demoralising for Labor's support in, this, in the area. Queensland Treasurer Jackie Trad is selling her investment property after she failed to declare it to Parliament. Ms Trad stood to benefit from the construction of Brisbane City Rail, a project she has ministerial responsibility over. The home is a short distance from a future train station, which will be constructed as part of the state's biggest infrastructure project. The case has been referred to Queensland's Crime and Corruption Commission by the opposition. Externally then, they saw an unpopular incumbent Labour MP who'd been embroiled in scandal. The Labour Party controlled the state parliament with 48 seats, while the Liberal National Party, the LNP, had 39. And so whilst Draki Chad was vulnerable, it was still going to be an uphill battle to unseat a leading figure from the dominant party. The demographics of the area were what we could call increasingly generation left referring to a short book by British academic Keir Milburn. It explains why throughout most liberal democracies, those under 45 are voting for left-wing parties by a clear and increasing majority. And some of these reasons are particularly acute in Queensland, with rising rents and more and more frequent flooding from a generally destabilised global climate. And then internally, I would say, like, if I had to put a number on it, we probably had 30 experienced volunteers in South Brisbane who are really, really committed and really, really good. There was definitely a core of about five or six of us really committed minds behind it in South Brisbane. We had, just in terms of cash, we, we were aiming for a very large budget. We were aiming for, we dreamed for a $400,000 budget or something like that. In the end, it was nowhere near that, but it was certainly enough to employ several field organizers, myself as campaign manager, and then towards the end of the campaign, some extra staff to help facilitate the election day sort of stuff. In terms of strengths and experience, we had a machine that was ready to roll out for door knocking, but nothing for anything else. Fortunately, our, our voter calling organizer Eva, who was quite brilliant, had sort of started prepping the ground during the council campaigns and they did some voter calling because there's a lot of apartments you can't knock on their doors. We didn't handle as much of the digital stuff because that was being handled centrally and we had a Nicole ended up being the digital strategist who led a lot of the fundraising, led a lot of the digital communications, email lists, handling some of the like social media 
the design and all this sort of stuff. So we were fortunate to have that as a centralized role so we could just get on with the on-the-ground mm. stuff. And so who is Amy McMahon? What's her background? Where does she come from? Amy's character is this incredible combination of modesty and grace, but confidence and an ability to uh, like bring people with her. Very well-spoken, sort of a community leader in the Enviro movements coming out of a University of Queensland campus. On the night of the 2017 election loss, when we just got close, Amy was booked in on primetime ABC television and she was told on air that she'd lost in this one-on-one interview because in almost like an ambush. And Amy, and they just cut away from Jackie Trad's victory speech and Amy just got up in front, would have been in front of a lot of people even brought it up in 2020 and just gave the most gracious this is about the movement, you know, like the reporter kept saying, well, Amy, you've lost. And Amy said, but look at the result we've done. Amy McMahon seeing that run through of the seat in the latest count. What do you think? Yeah, look, a, a bloody amazing swing to the Greens. Um, incredible. I, such a testament to the it, big team of volunteers we've had on the ground door knocking for the past 12 months. Um, and it, it's looking pretty close. Um, but regardless of the outcome, um, this has been a huge swing um, and, and yet not enough and yet not enough yeah yeah and a huge swing to the greens across the state as well i think the party has never been in a stronger position um, and we're going to be heading into future elections in a really strong position and yet not enough in south brisbane because yeah. the greens you really pumped all your resources or a, a the bulk of your resources mm. into trying to wrest that seat from Jackie Trad. So what's gone wrong? Oh, look, we always knew this was going to be tough. Um, going up against the Deputy Premier, going up against the Labor Party um, with their, you know, uh, huge amounts of resources and people on the ground and the benefit of being uh, a sitting MP as well. Uh, a lot of name recognition, um, but still a 14% swing. Um, and I think, I think we should be really proud, um, yeah. And ironically enough, it was her toughest moment of being told she was lost on primetime television was the moment where I think a lot of people probably made up their mind that they were gonna vote for her next time. And we anecdotally heard that on the door a lot. And so I think it was just incredible to watch and strength, like a strength like nothing else. And I think that confirmed to a lot of people that they would back her then. So now we turn to strategy which is something the Queensland Greens have been building and evolving for several years now. But before we hear their strategy for this South Brisbane race, it's useful to know how people even conceive of strategy. How do they approach making it? What do they think about and how do they define it? Here's Max, who remember is the Greens' Queensland state strategist. So this better be good. I think for me, it's broken down into two or three categories, organisational, well, probably two, maybe organisational and political strategy, and they sort of relate to each other. And so for me, it's like ultimately how you relate to the material and political con conditions on the ground, organisationally and politically, with your overall arching political goal in mind. Like what, what are you trying to achieve both in the short and long term? And that has to be informed by actually existing conditions on the ground. Uh, and in terms of what policies you talk about, what is the overarching narrative and how do you describe the existing political and social conditions in a way that mobilises both your voters and supporters and gives them a, co a political coherency. So how, how do you relate to that ideologically, I suppose? And then organisationally, how do you take that sort of those political conditions and the narrative that you're spinning and how do you intervene in those in that actually existing reality via your 
essentially the, for lack of a better term, weapons you have at your disposal, whether that be, you know, relation to the media, relation to, you know, volunteers and, and also your paid staff and organize, and your just broader organization and how you do you leverage that organization to build more power. And by power, I mean the capacity to intervene in the real world with politically educated party members and volunteers. Yeah, I, I would just say like on, on the electoral front, like so obviously strategy, you know, union strategy or social movement strategy would be different. But just in, thinking about it in, in this context, I really just think it's like, okay, well, what, what is the thing we need to talk about that's going to sh- shift votes? How many people do we need to talk to with those things to shift the required number of votes? And then how many people do we need to mobilize to do that? And how do we mobilize them? That's basically the, the three sort of questions that I would be asking myself before setting out a strategy because basically the the premise that we've had for a long time is that it's the one-on-one conversations or small group conversations but one-on-one is the way that we tend to do it with you know i suppose we've been also reading a lot of jane mcalevy jane mcalevy is an american trade union organizer whose three books on trade union organizing and political strategy have earned her the reputation as one of the most effective and inspiring people around she explains the craft of organizing in a really clear and accessible way and she has heaps of absolutely wild stories from her time in trade unions. I'll link to some of her articles, interviews and books in the show notes, but one of the main things she talks about is that we should practice something she calls deep organizing. You know, this model of not not just always talking to the same old people. If it's the same old people turning up to the rally, then, then you're doing something wrong. And in the electoral arena, you just literally have to speak to as many people who might not initially agree with you as possible. That's the core of the whole thing. But of course, yeah, what do you talk to them about? We we talk a lot about the feedback loop between, and this is something that Max has pioneered, I think, um, the feedback loop between the door knocking and the messaging and policy itself. We don't just kind of craft a message and a policy in the abstract and then go out and deliver it to people and tell people what they should care about. We spend a lot of time thinking about what are we hearing from people? What language are they using to describe their issues? And then how do we either narrativize our existing policies or even think of new policy frameworks to relate to these issues that are actually coming up? Like the door knocking is part of working out what the social reality is itself. It's not just a means to deliver a message. As you mentioned at the start, Though this episode focuses on the South Brisbane seat that they won, it was part of a statewide strategy covering Queensland's population of 5 million people. So, what was the strategy? There were sort of three core strategies of the entire state campaign that filtered down into everything. Like the seven-seat strategy, mining billionaires versus ordinary people, and the high-volume policy strategy. But what was core when we launched was the seven-street strategy, which was that What we wanted to do, what we recognised that one of the biggest barriers to people shifting to voting for the Greens was that, well, you're a small party and you can only really win one or two seats. And so we needed a plausible narrative to to cut across that and demonstrate that we're a large, growing political movement. And what that was, was that as a result of very successful council election campaign, just in terms of big swings to the Greens across Brisbane in particular, but also in places like the Sunshine Coast, which is north of Brisbane. The Greens were in this really strong position coming into the state election. And so what we what we did when we launched is we announced Amy McMahon, but also Mike Kirsten Lovejoy and five other candidates on in at the sort of start of 2020 and announced that we were planning on winning up to seven seats in state parliament, lower house seats, and we were going to fund them and run big field campaigns on the ground. 
and that we were this large political movement, growing political movement. And we coordinated it really well in the media. We got great TV media to do two things, really, because we knew South Brisbane would be the major focus, but essentially to provide support and backup to South Brisbane so that Amy couldn't be isolated and treated as an individual Greens candidate then picked off. But one someone who was helping to lead a whole wave of Greens candidates that were potentially about to interstate parliament. And so our strategy was to have tens of thousands, not just in South Brisbane, but across Queensland. You know, I think in the end, we had about 35,000 of these one-on-one conversations in the electorates that we were trying to win. And they're going to work because we've done the analysis and the strategizing. And we know that when you go to someone's door, you'll be talking to someone who is by almost certainly disconnected from politics, and but also feeling powerless and not sure how they can affect the material world around them. And so our conversation is going to be really effective if you just deliver this message in this particular way. To build that narrative and to do their analysis, they developed a systematic model of integrating feedback from the streets back into the party HQ. And that feedback model we've had for a long time, but we systemized it. We thought one of the sort of things that we were thinking about in the lead up to this, the state election was, well, we know that one of the organic things or sort of relatively somewhat systematic things that we've done in previous elections. So in the Griffith 2019 campaign, the South Brisbane 2017 campaign and the Gabba 2016 campaign was probably, I would say, in the top three most important things like actual activities that we did in our campaigns and we do are the door knock debriefs because mm. what occurs in those uh, are often really interesting strategic discussions where we ask our volunteers, as Liam, I think, like alluded to, what messages did you use at the door that were really effective? What were the things that were coming up? What language did you use to describe people's problems and how did you relate to those problems? And were there any particular narratives and or messages that you used or any of the policies and the way you described them that noticeably shifted someone's support to the Greens. And Mm -hmm. there was a crucial moment in the 2016 campaign, the GAB Award, where a few people had been talking about property developer donations. So donations Labor and the LNP were taking from property developers. And all of a sudden, we just, I I remember turning to Jono after one of these debriefs and saying it's property developer donations. And (laughs) in the, the last four weeks, three weeks, that's all we talked about. (laughs) <laughs> and, you know, like someone would talk about their dog park and we'd be like, yeah, well, I mean, we could have more dog parks if, you know, we banned property developer donations. Which is true, is true. Also has the benefit <laughs> of being true. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. I mean, I probably don't have time to explain why. And that was a magical moment. Like people were just so angry about development, uh, but what developer donations had done, and that was just a result organically discovered as a result of volunteers trialing things. I can't actually remember which volunteer figured it out. Like discovered was that that coalesced that opposition and created mm-hmm. a narrative that shifted people to the Greens. And in the lead up to the state election, we what occurred was that we developed a draft platform and, but... What we did then was I would have regular meetings with all of the weekly meetings with the key campaign managers. So Liam in South Brisbane, Claire Scrine in Maywa, and she's a brilliant campaign manager, pulled off also a brilliant win in Maywa, uh, retaining the seat that we won in 2017. Uh, and Damien, yeah, yeah, monster swing, and Damien in McConnell. And we would just go through what were the politi- political messages coming up on the ground? What were the things that were shifting votes? what's really working, what's not. And that what I would use, that information was to subtly shift the way the policies that we're announcing in the election, what we were focusing on, et cetera. And it's for us, I would say it's one of our magic source 
things yeah. like and it it's only possible because we have the flexibility within the state organization i think and the willingness to adopt and follow that strategy with that big picture strategy running statewide what did it look like on the ground in south brisbane how were liam amy mcmahon and their volunteers planning on using their resources to try and win this seat so we'd been preparing for this campaign for for months, maybe even a year. I'd been thinking about it. Certainly six months had been thinking about it, prepping plans in my brain and starting to think about Nicole, who was to begin with the co-campaign manager, but then shifted into a digital strategist role. She and I had been prepping, having conversations with all of our core volunteers. During the 2020 March council election period, we were making sure we were having good relationships with all the volunteers uh, who are campaigning for the local council elections and prepping them for a six-month run from April through to October. Max had developed a brilliant platform that I think united the environmental and more sort of social justice class-based wings of the, the the Greens and our supporter base. And basically it would be like, well, on a strategy level, we need to have 10,000 one-on-one meaningful conversations. That's the goal we've set ourselves because that might seem overkill, but we know we're gonna come up against a really strong opposition, particularly in the last few weeks, and we can't take anything for granted. So we're gonna have 10,000 over the phones, at the doors. And what we're gonna be talking about is the fact that over the last 10 years, the big mining corporations have exported you know, over a hundred billion dollars in our wealth. In 480 Queens. billion. Oh, that's right. 480, 480, billion. 480 billion. So there you go. This is why I can't remember. And at, at the same time, our schools are underfunded, our health systems underfunded. It's You could just list any number of things. So why don't we just make them pay their fair share finally? And then we can have, you know, hundred percent renewable energy. We can have, you know, the various things that any lefty greens people who are coming into our orbit are very mobilized both on the climate stuff but also i feel increasingly on class-based issues particularly around renter like being a being a poor renter gives them an experience of being dispossessed and alienated and they you know our message i think resonated really well with them but it also did it had the benefit of having a unifying enemy. Most people aren't going to say, oh, no, I think the mining billionaires are paying just enough and they're doing great stuff. Like, mo- not you know, 80 to 90% of the electorate would agree with you there. Whether you could shift their vote on that basis is another question. But like, I mean, in terms of strategy, I'd be like, here's our message and we need to have 10,000 of these one-on-one conversations. Can you rock up at the next <laughs> training or door knock or whatever? Yeah, these trainings have were first first developed for us and became central to us in the 2017 campaign when what occurred started to occur was that because the South Brisbane electorate was in a geographically defined area, we realised that the meaningful conversations we were having with people had to be really high quality because the Labor Party had started door knocking. Our logic at the time was, well, we're talking to the same people again and again because our volunteer organisation is so big, you know, having hundreds of, and then eventually thousands of conversations. Well, they need to be good quality. And so we came from that premise that, well, what we need to do, the sort of two things we need to do is the art and science of a persuasive conversation, what that looks like and the structure of it, but also how do you convey the politics? And so the way we made it exciting this time, actually something that Mel McAuliffe, who was the state field organiser, helped sort of support campaigns outside of the key campaigns. One of the things that we sort of thought about this time to make it really fun and interesting is we led with the big political picture. So the session was breaking into sort of Three, two to three parts. The first part was, why are you here? Why is your having like, you know, 10 one-on-one conversations in a weekend, the path to a 
major political tr- and social and economic transformation and like what why are those conversations effective and so we would just spend the first 10 to 15 maybe even 20 minutes of this training session that might even go for three or four hours we'd have big lunch breaks in between etc and social mixing etc just explaining the strategy you know we talk about the fact that concept of political alienation and people had become disconnected from politics via declining party membership as well as trade union organization and that people felt disconnected and powerless in politics and that was the overarching feeling of civil society and that actually your role volunteer you know this we give this little spiel which was like look it might feel like you're only having 10 conversations but lots of trickles make a waterfall and if there's a hundred of you having conversations across Brisbane that's this many thousands of conversations and if you have them for six months it's 35,000 conversations and so you're part of a collective movement greater than yourself but crucially important that you're involved and we would talk about the medium-term picture we'd say over the next 10 to 15 years our goal is to have the greens involved in some sort of power sharing deal in a state government or in local council and you're in the first footsteps you know you're the giants that other people will be standing on the shoulders of hopefully in the next 10 to 15 years time liam and i and nicole and everyone are never shy about sharing volunteers into that broader strategic goal and that's I think what made the trainings just fulfilling like we split the trainings into experienced and intermediate and beginner and beginning trainings are just very basic like what questions you should ask you know have you got any particular issues have you thought about voting greens before if not why and intermediates different theories that we have behind persuasive conversations one we often use is leap which is just like a union organizing theory that we've adapted for door knocking and then in advanced is just great this is Liam and I's favorite and Liam did some brilliant master classes in South Brisbane which essentially you just get like five people around and you just have lots of mock conversations and then we just all critique each other's conversations and say, oh, you could have done this thing a little bit better. In a very supportive way, I have to say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, no not, not in a trot way. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah, kind yeah. of like Maoist yeah. self-criticism session. Yeah. No, it's not not like that at all. It's it's like group dynamic, group feedback and, and everyone's... Yes. I think... Um, sorry. Important to, clarification for the lefties out there. Yeah, yeah. I think one of the things that we've been able to do is develop, a, and we talked about this in 2017 and it's really flowed through, is to try to cultivate a culture of like almost scientific obsessiveness on, on the part of the of our door knockers who or who like there's no limit you don't get perfect at, at door knocking you can always get better you can always handle uh, a particular issue better you can always be you can always develop new questions you can ask to draw things out of people you can always develop new ways of pivoting from a local issue to a sort of more macro level issue those sorts of things and i think when enough of a critical mass of core volunteers have that mentality and have that kind of passion for getting better at things it flows through to all the other volunteers who are like ah oh, this isn't just I'm not just like cannon fodder. I, I'm not just out delivering this one, three, three, two or three key lines. I'm actually developing myself as someone who can you know, persuade people about politics, who can talk to, to anybody about politics and relate to them. I'm breaking out of my own isolation. I'm out of my bubble from, you know, on Facebook and all this other stuff. By and large, the trainings lead to the most, that's got the most flow through, like follow through, I should say, from volunteers. So they come to a training, usually they those ones who come to a training want to stick around and and do more stuff. So the the trainings have been really critical part of, and I I also think just developing the politics of our movement. They're a great way for people to learn, I guess, broadly speaking, socialist politics, but in a way that isn't some weird, Mm. dry, thing group thing that I've been through too many of. 
Just as they were about to launch this campaign, the first wave of COVID-19 hit Australia and they went into lockdown. It could have spelled disaster because as we've heard, their strategy was so focused on thousands of one-to-one conversations with people on their doorsteps. In South Brisbane, their big kickoff event had to be cancelled and they moved it online. Yeah, well, uh, yeah, look, that was a really intense time. What we were planning on doing at the time was this big in-person launch on the same day. You know, we get this big media conference and then that make this big, bold claim that we we're going to win up to seven seats. And so we organized to this mass, decided to treat the launch day as the first day of advertising for this big online movement, uh, sort of like Zoom essentially rally. That ended up, we ended up getting seven, five or 700 people logging on all to participate in and, and also to see how we had political conversations and things like that. And so that was the kickoff. And it was really, it was bittersweet because we didn't get to do a lot of the in-person things we did, but it was actually very successful. And we also, we re-pivoted the volunteer narrative and we produced this video, which I can send to you, Hugh, because we actually really like it. Changing the volunteer narrative to make sure people felt still empowered, even though we couldn't door knock and starting to talk about phone banking, but also organizing online, etc. Though it was actually very clever. The video was like, produced to look like Amy was calling you on FaceTime. Um... G'day, it's Michael here. Hi, it's Amy here. Hey there, it's Kirsten. Right now, things are tough. We're stuck at home with an uncertain future. And maybe you're wondering, what more can I do to create a better world? Well, here's the thing. If we want a better future, it's up to us. But we know there's more that unites us than divides us. And you know what? That terrifies them. They are terrified of you and me and what we can achieve when we work together. So this election, let's remind them of a fact they've clearly forgotten. Together, we're unstoppable. On FaceTime, um, and we got really good engagement and feedback with that. And that wasn't just down to the state office, that was in the key campaigns as well. And Liam leading it in South Brisbane and Damien and McConnell and Claire and Maywa and then in our, um, what we called our strategic seats, which were the other four seats that we were sort of hoping to um, get big swings or even win in. We had a target initially that we'd set that we wanted 10,000 meaningful conversations. And then as soon, when COVID hit, we weren't sure how many phone numbers we'd be able to get our hands on. We weren't sure how effective our calling operation would be, how good the data would be, et cetera, et cetera, how efficient such a mass scale uh, thing, particularly in lockdown, we weren't sure how long the lockdown was going to go for. Is this going to be months or is this just going to be a few weeks? And so we halved our target to 5,000 and we thought this is this is the bare minimum for me to feel like we've got a, we're, we're in with a shot, but that's about all we can really do if it's a, an entirely a voter calling operation. And I still felt that we would, we were in with a strong shot, especially since we felt that we would be able to pivot and scale up in a new new terrain quicker than the Labor Party because we, I think we're just a more dy- dynamic organisation. But the lockdown was lifted. We were able to reinflate all our targets and we managed to actually, we sort of incrementally, oh, actually, maybe we aim for six. Oh, maybe we aim for seven and a half. Oh, look, eight and a half. Oh, fuck it. Ten. We're back up to 10. And we managed to get just shy of 10,000 conversations. I think the shock of the lockdown meant that we had initially fewer resources people were less inclined to just we were doing distributed phone banking from people's like people would log into a zoom call and then hop on some software from their home to call voters and so on and that was we'd never done that before but not all of them were really committed and and trained in 
phone conversations. They were happy to do door knocking, but it was the next level to get them up to speed on the voter calling. But as soon as the lockdown started to ease, the floodgates started to open and we sort of doubled our like core capacity very quickly. Because most of the campaigns that they run across the state utilize that feedback model from conversations on the door to shape policy and narratives around the issue that they want candidates to stand for. They usually start about 12 months out from election day, which is super early. So by the time lockdown lifted in Queensland, there was still plenty of time left to generate momentum. And they had two key tactics to do this. At a state and party level, a series of big, bold, transformative policy announcements. We'll come back to those in a minute. But on the ground and in their field campaign, we really structured it around a few key large-scale volunteer events. So there were two what we called mega days of action. It was something we hadn't done before. What we'd done before in previous campaigns were just mega door knocks where we tried to get as many people along to a kind of a little rally and speeches and then everyone head out and door knock. problem with that being that it's extremely inefficient and it's largely just a... Um, kind of a comms exercise in the end, a show of strength. Whereas the mega days of action, it's set up so that we try to get as many volunteers to do a whole day of campaigning as possible and we spread it out across the electorate. And in fact, this time we spread it out across all of the, the seven strategic seats and even across the state so that everyone who was involved in any of these campaigns felt that they were part of this giant day of action where each, you know, we managed to get 500 conversations or 600 conversations in a single day in one seat and you multiply that by several seats it's you know i think we managed to crack 2000 conversations in a day across brisbane for the for the second one and people felt like they were really part of this major thing and it, it doubled as a comms exercise and a, and a show of strength because we had you know six different photos of six different large-scale door knocks plus letterboxing plus whatever else but it also meant that we built we, we just got a huge volume of, of conversations in, in a day. And it functioned, I guess, in retrospect, now that I think about it in these terms, as a bit of a structure test for the organization. If you talk in Jane McAlevey terms of like, are we at the level that we need to be at by this stage? Like, because they came at strategic moments of like, we need to start scaling up after this. We're going to split into more doorknock teams after this moment. And so this is a test of like, have we got enough dedicated people who will do a full day of door knocking, et cetera, et cetera, because afterwards we need to take things to the next level. And they're both very successful in that sense. And they also mm. had the benefit of, if it's a full day of campaigning, you train your campaigners to be comfortable with the idea of just doing a full day of campaigning rather than just a three-hour stint. And so often after those mega door knocks, you saw people being like, ah, oh, it's not so hard. I'll do two door knocks in a day rather than just one. So they were, they were, that was kind of how we structured things out at, at a local level. And then obviously when the campaign is actually, the election is actually called, then you've got a number of smaller milestones around putting up yard signs, delivering particular letters and so on. Alongside the door knocks, there are two other key parts of their strategy, releasing high volumes of transformative policies. This plan for universal uh, public services, bringing essential services back into public hands, 100% clean energy and you know, free school lunches. And running a populist narrative strategy. Most clearly articulated by Chantal Mouffe in her short book, Four Left Populism, it sets up an opposition between an elite and the common people. You show that what's in the interests of the elite is not in the interests of us, the common people. And it encourages everyone to pick a side. 
By choosing who you define as the elite blocking progress, you try and build a broad coalition to oppose them without getting stuck on whatever internal disagreements there are. Various left-wing formations have tried this, notably Podemos in Spain. There's heaps of discussion about its positives and negatives, but the Queensland Greens have so far avoided one main drawback of a popular strategy, which is its tendency to create so-called hyper-leaders who become the single symbol of the common people. So what was the opposition that the Greens were setting up in Queensland? Which was like the mining billionaires versus ordinary people. And, and coming into the election, we did, you know, sort of a power analysis of Queensland. And one of the things that was very clear is that the mining industry, in particular the coal industry, coal and gas industry in Queensland is king. Their roots, because they generate an enormous amount of export revenue for the state, but also because for sort of a bunch of historical reasons, they are dominant politically and economically in Queensland. They sort of uh, warp the economy in, in their favour and actually pay very little tax, unsurprisingly. I'm not sure if Liam would agree with this, but I felt like one of the evolutions from 2017 was a real clarifying moment of recognising that the central class enemy in Queensland were the mining billionaires and the mining corporations, more so than 2017 because property developers were also such a focus then. And so what we did was we announced the Queensland government right at the start of the year froze mining royalties. So essentially effectively gave mining corporations a big tax cut because royalties is the way that revenue is raised by the state governments. And what that did is it created the political space for us to be the only political party going into the election calling for an increase in mining royalties during the recession. And so... As Liam alluded to previously, we had, we as a result of some economic analysis, we figured out that mining corporations had exported $480 billion worth of resources. And so we, our first policy that really we properly announced in the election was a massive increase in mining royalties. So from the 7% that they currently are all the way up to 35%. And we announced that in the media. And that we got a, a little bit of an, like attention. But what we did was every policy announcement that we made from then on, it was like, whatever it may be, we came back, the central narratives that would be funded by raising royalties on mining corporations. And it became relentless. Uh, and these, there was these key moments in the campaign where we could get Michael or Amy on radio uh, or on TV or in the newspapers. We've seen everyday Queenslanders put last and talking to everyday Queenslanders about the issues that matter to them. And offering every Queenslander access to the things they need to lead a good life. We're going to be fighting for everyday Queenslanders. Making big corporations pay their fair share. Instead, mining billionaires have been put first. Peddled by the resources companies who don't want to have to pay their fair share here in Queensland. And the Greens in Parliament, with representatives who don't take any corporate donations, are going to be fighting for everyday Queenslanders here in South Brisbane and right across Queensland. And we did that quite often, where at the end of that announcement we'd say, well, and this is funded by making mining billionaires pay their fair share by raising royalties, because we know that the Queensland, Queensland mining corporations have exported $480 billion of resources and paid 7% on that in tax. It's disgraceful. Amy, 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 let, just let me ask this question. It's ironic that we've got a seat in inner city Brisbane and we're talking about mining. You want to quadruple the mining royalties for mining companies, how, how are they going to survive? I mean, it's just ludicrous. Where do you get that policy from? 
Our plan plans to raise $55 billion by increasing royalties here in You don't think they'll go broke? Uh, to a very fair rate. Yes, we've got a very fair rate, 35% for coal and gas and 20% for base and precious minerals. These companies can afford to pay that. A lot of them get away with paying $0 in Are tax. Are you serious? 10 of the 11 go biggest, no, go the of the 11 biggest mining that. companies in Queensland correct. paid $0 in tax. Down, These companies Amy. are incredibly you wealthy. Will have tens and that's a lie that's peddled by the resources companies who work. don't want to have to pay their fair share here in Queensland. And it's incredible to see both Labor and the LNP singing from the resources lobby songbook in saying that these, these industries are going to shut down. Our they cost work $5 billion dollars a year. Phasing out of coal Amy. and you gas. 35%. And we've got a huge resources tomorrow. sector that and will continue will. into the future. So In reality, these companies schools, are incredibly no. wealthy. You'll kill hospitals the cow. and schools. You'll this is what we're talking and about. You think you'll get the milk out of it? Well, Peter, can I just ask who from the resources sector has the Greens political party talked to about this? Like, policy should actually include the views of stakeholders, all stakeholders. Can I say, this is an extensively researched policy. We know that these companies can afford it. In Norway, they have the 51% rate on their petroleum industry. Are we really going to squander the rest of the resources in Queensland because we're pandering to these big mining companies? It's unacceptable. I would say the key moment was when the strategy flipped and really worked, which is when the Queensland Resource Council, which is the head mining lobby for Queensland, split over their attack on the Queensland Greens. HP has suspended its membership with the QRC effective immediately after a series of politically driven posts were shared on social media. The post encouraged Queenslanders to vote Greens last in the state election. BHB says it has expressed to the QRC on several occasions its opposition to this advertising approach and had formally requested that it be withdrawn. Unfortunately, this has not occurred. The Queensland Resources Council Board responded today with a statement saying it considered the issue of an anti-Greens campaign carefully before the board decided to proceed with the campaign. The QRC believes the Greens will target jobs in the sector and it had no choice but to stand up for its 372,000 members. But it has since removed the post. And from our mind, from what we understood and we were told on background was that they were worried about what would happen if they attacked us and they didn't stop us. And it was a crucial moment where Ian McFarlane, the head of the QRC, got onto radio and we just announced the policy of giving every child a free breakfast and lunch. And Michael had done this brilliant job being like, 20% of children in Queensland are in child poverty. Mining corporations shouldn't be making fucking money hand over fist without giving a little bit back. And Ian McFarlane came on after. This is prime time morning ABC radio. This is our national broadcaster. Ian McFarlane is the chief executive of the Queensland Resources Council. Good morning, Ian. Morning, Rebecca. How are you? Well, thank you. And Ian McFarlane is this nasty ex-coalition minerals resource minister, but also now the head of the mining lobby. And the radio presenter's last question. Uh, I'm guessing then you're saying there's not room for extra royalties to pay for school breakfasts? Well, those are discussions that we have with the state government every budget, but you pay for a lot of things already with $5.3 billion, Rebecca, and the state government has acknowledged that as, as recently as yesterday and the day before when the Premier spoke about the importance of the resources industry and the good working relationship she has with Queensland Resources Council. Ian, always appreciate your time. Thanks so much.
like that was a really big turning point in the campaign because all of a sudden it confirmed all of what we'd been saying, which was that it was Queensland Greens and our movement versus the mining billionaires. As we heard in episode three, Chloe Swarbrick's campaign had to try and avoid the framing of being a campaign that would split the left-wing vote. Here though, the Queensland Greens were on the other side of that, having their framing of mining royalties potentially paying for kids' breakfasts reinforced on national radio and making a powerful leader of an oppositional group speak within it. I got in touch with the Resource Council about this interview and they said, quote, We believe Ian McFarlane represented the industry's pragmatic position extremely well in this interview and we received numerous follow-up emails and calls to the QRC thanking Ian for speaking up for resources and for the hundreds of thousands of people who are employed as a result of the resources sector and whose businesses depend on it. We also did a survey after the election and our reputation as an industry and level of trust within us had improved significantly. They also noted to me that across the state as a whole, the Greens vote actually went down a little bit compared to the last time. There are competing reasons for this and Max will talk a little bit more about what they think the problem was later on. It goes to show though, that if you're gonna take on a big industry, one that contributes a lot of jobs in the area and one with significant political power, there'll be some kind of move away from you, just as you hope that you'll attract others. So how are they confident in doing it? We felt sure because basically what we wanted to do is polarize the election and demonstrate that they were on their side and that if we were confident that if we were attacked for the right reasons, so if we're attacked for wanting to go after the mining industry and pay, make them pay in the words of the Murdoch papers too much in tax, just because we wanted to give, we wanted to do socialism and make sure everyone, every child got a meal. We thought that no, that people are inherently recognize their own material interests and they can cut through the spin of media attacks and realize for what it is and see the core of what we're being attacked for. And so the more we were attacked, we were confident, the more our policy platform was spread throughout the general public. And so we had a Curie Mail test, which is like, you know, that like in Queensland, they had the Curie Mail as the conservative Murdoch paper. And traditionally, the Curie Mail test was like, oh, if we say this, will we be attacked in the Curie Mail? And if we are, then we shouldn't say it. And our Good joking Curie Mail test was, are we in the Curie Mail? Yes, good. And you know, that was just, we, it was more successful than I think we'd anticipated because we didn't think we could trick the mining industry into attacking us. If you remember back to episode three in the Auckland Green Party campaign, some of its most energetic parts were the cultural or community events that didn't really have normal campaigning or contacting voters as their main objective. But here in Queensland, they didn't really do any of this. And it goes to show that there's no one way to win or to run a campaign. But avoiding this type of thing and building support for a more explicit socialist platform was a deliberate choice made by Liam, Amy, Nicole, Max and their team. I think the way Jono's 2016 campaign um, got off the ground or at least part of its base was recruited through cultural events called the Roving Conspiracy, which is like a Monday night sort of jam session that happened at different kind of semi-public, semi-private sort of half-occupied spaces across the city, which drew in a layer of young people to, you know, for slam poetry and for open mic, live music, et cetera, and Jono would speak. I think that was quite successful then. We haven't really lent into that since. I personally feel we've had to work hard at differentiating ourselves from a slightly too self-satisfied inner city countercultural left can start look t- turning in on itself a little too much so we've we've tried to avoid that too much personally i'm not inclined to go overboard on that stuff because of falling into the trap of substituting 
kind of inward looking stuff for what should always just be much more outreach focused and relating to other layers of the working class rather than just the inner city um, young person. Yeah, I, Liam's right. Like roving conspiracy was a really important base for Jono in 2016 and 2015. I think it's just worth being honest that for us, like I think that it hasn't played a massive part post that campaign for better or for worse. Although we are looking more seriously about doing it for the upcoming Griffith campaign. But it's more, I would say again, Liam, maybe like this is certainly my experience, but the doorknock debriefs were just these great social, like it was this like comradely, like I'll link it to you, Hugh, but one of our really good comrades and my partner actually wrote an article for Overland, this um, literary journal about door knocking. And it's really like her description of the just beautiful, I would say, experience and comradely experience of everyone just sticking around for half an hour and 45 minutes, maybe going and getting a beer afterwards and just reflecting on the conversations you had and what that meant for our politics and things like that. Like that that was where the closest and the most important social connections were formed on the campaigns we've been involved in. But like the closest I felt to this sense of comradeship that it's, you know, it's beyond friendship or love, like intimate love, but it's this sort of like this feeling of just joy with being with these people and joy that you are part of something bigger than yourself and that you're you're sharing this with other people. And it's those social connections that were formed almost unbreakable bonds, even when campaigns got really tough. Some of the best covered electoral wins for socialists have come in the US. People like Cory Bush, Ilhan Omar and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez won their campaigns with the support of a vibrant, if still small, ecosystem of left-wing organizations, media companies, and social movements all coming together. So for those of us in way smaller countries, with way less people and less resources, it's rare that we'll have this kind of ecosystem of organizations with paid staff to endorse, support, and campaign for our candidates. And for the Queensland Greens, they definitely didn't have any backup. It really is just us. Like, in 2017, we had a massive issue with a lot of the environmental NGOs and an organization called GetUp, which like there's good people in these organizations. And don't, don't get me wrong, and I want to put that on record, but their organizational strategies often ran in direct contradiction with us winning seats off the Labor Party. But they released a poll in the media in 2017 that said we were going to lose Maywa by 10%. We can't work out whether or not it was, like it probably wasn't deliberately tampered with, but it was so far off the electoral results as to be alarming. We ended up winning it. Like their poll was, their margin of error was something like 15% for the Greens vote. And they used that poll, we think, to essentially encourage progressive people just to go back and back the Labor Party. And we've encountered that again and again. This this, this ecosystem of actually quite hostile <laughs> um, uh, e, uh, NGOs. Ultimately, they're so yeah. tied to the Labor Party and, and the institutional frameworks just means that the, even though when you talk to a lot of them, they're like, oh, it's so frustrating. Labor government isn't doing what I'm doing, you know, when push comes to shove. <laughs> it's not even just better the devil, you know, it's just like they are so tied. We, we, we'll have to make a lot more ground before things start to to break away. I would just quickly before we move on, just say that on the ground in South Brisbane, on the ground in the sort of more community organisations, Labor still were, I think it probably became a 50-50 split in terms of like the the parents and citizens, like the PNCs groups, the like community 
like anti-development groups. I think we were starting to, we've because of Jono's work and because of all the door knocking we've done and because of the growth and support of the Greens and because of Labor's constant disappointment for people, I think maybe by the end of the 2020 campaign, we were the dominant force across most of those small civil society organizations, but that might not actually be true. It would be, it would be very close. Not that they have a lot of leverage power, but they do have roots into different aspects of the community. And so there were some definite gatekeepers and, you know, community figures who were still backing Jackie uh, Trad over the Greens, even though <laughs> they knew what, she, what she'd done, what she hadn't done. But we had flipped a lot of them over the few uh, mm. preceding years. Not that they were actively supporting us, but neutralised opposition, that's for sure. The Queensland Greens are optimistic of snatching the seat of former Deputy Premier Jackie Trad in South Brisbane as Election Day nears. Early voting numbers have broken all previous Queensland records with more than 740,000 people already casting their vote. Greens candidate for South Brisbane, Amy McMahon, joins us now. Amy, what are you up to this morning? Oh, good morning. Thanks for having me. Um, I'm down here at the West End pre-poll booth where people are already voting. Uh, people have been coming through all morning and we've been having some really good chats with people um, as they head in to lodge their vote. Tonight, um, but we're feeling very good. We know we've been doing lots of hard work over the last few months. We've had 10,000 conversations with people in South Brisbane uh, and doing such good work to connect with the community. We know that support for the Greens here is just surging, um, as well as in a number of neighbouring... So we'd been, across the course of the campaign, tracking our support level, sort of we got a way of analysing roughly the data that we get and so on. We felt quite confident that our vote was, was good. We got a favourable-looking poll. Having said that, the COVID, we could tell that something was coming in the last two to three weeks. I, I think, Max, you were saying the same thing. You could kind of tell that things were shifting a little bit in some of the seats and it ended up being a generalised trend that people were shifting back to the Labor Party just because Palaszczuk had been seen to have done a good job at managing COVID in terms of like closing the borders, the lockdowns, all this sort of stuff. And so that definitely started to, you could tell there were people saying it at the door, oh, normally I'd vote for you guys or like I was thinking about voting for you guys, but this time I think I'll stick with the Labor Party. And it started to I was a little worried. Having said that, on election day, when we turned out in force and we had triple the number of volunteers on each booth, or more, I'd say, than the Labor Party, and you could tell that the young people in particular were just so enthusiastically voting for the Greens, we were winning almost every booth, you could tell. Not not as much as I would have liked. You could definitely tell there was a, a layer of more established homeowner types who were coming in voting for the Labor Party. Uh, not enthusiastically, but just because, you know, that's that's what they decided. So we were, I was confident, but I was a little less confident than I would have liked to have been. But it was, that two weeks leading up to it was, about, was actually a tricky time emotionally. <laughs> the seat with the most eyes on it tonight is South Brisbane, where former Deputy Premier Jackie Trad is in the fight for her life. Now, the Greens have been tipped to cause an upset, and Isabel Mullen is there. Well, at this stage, we're prepared to call South Brisbane and we're saying that Jackie Trad will be defeated. Um, on first preferences, the, the Greens are on 39.6. There's no way that the Greens are going to finish behind Jackie Trad. He's standing by to have a chat to us. Amy McMahon, first of all, congratulations. How do you feel? Thank you. 
I can tell how your supporters are feeling. We can't quite hear you at the moment. So you've defeated a deputy premier, a power broker, one of the most well-known people in state politics. What do you think was the difference? Oh, look, I think the difference is that we know that people are fed up with both Labor and the LNP. They're fed up with cash for access meetings, they're fed up with secret royalties deals, they're fed up with cuts to the wages of teachers and nurses. And instead the Greens have been going out with this really positive vision for the future of Queensland, where we can use the state's enormous wealth to fully fund our essential services, to have 100% publicly owned clean energy, construction jobs, building 100,000 public homes, free public transport, free school lunches for all Queensland kids. We've gone out with this really positive vision for Queensland and everyday Queenslanders have responded, as you can see. Uh, we're so excited uh, about this opportunity to, to fight for everyday Queenslanders. Turns out we smashed it um, and pulled several points ahead of the Labor Party on the primary vote and then got the Liberal preferences and completely decimated them. And that felt fucking good, I can tell you. A bit like it was so joyful on the night and I've just felt an overriding sense of relief. But I think also this feeling that solidified over the course of the of the weeks following the election was this cons this sense of what could have been if it weren't for the condition political conditions that COVID created. And we had this sense, and then we got exit polling that confirmed it, that one in two people who ended up voting for the Labor Party voted because of their handling of the pandemic. And we saw this enormous, unprecedented shift of all of these people that just said, well, look, we just voted because we didn't actually, the economy and everything else fell away. And our biggest issue was the handling of the pandemic. And I think it was incredibly stressful and joyful, like, especially because of the Labor Party's attacks around, you know, stupid things like the Mean Girls tweet. I had shifted from being very confident we were going to win South Brisbane to definitely sharing Liam's worry. Uh, and so that was not, like an enormous sense of elation. And just getting Amy into Parliament, to be honest, was just very satisfying because the Labor Party hate her and I love her all the more for it. But I think if we, if it weren't for COVID, the other election that we got, seat we were really surprised seat and it felt like South Brisbane 2017 was in the seat of Cooper which is another traditionally held Labor seat and that got a nine percent swing out of the like out of the blue out of this brilliant candidate Katinka and this great campaign team with very limited resources and got within two percent of winning and uh, that was based off the same strategy and politics we deployed in South Brisbane but pioneering it in that area for the first time and what we're looking forward to I think in the 2024 state election is finishing what we started in terms of going up that next level and, you know, trying to get, actually try and get four or seven seats in state parliament. As we've talked about before, figuring out why you win something in politics isn't always the easiest thing to do. Clearly, they'd correctly assess the conditions to some extent. A powerful but vulnerable incumbent MP, a message that resonated and persuaded, and the data from their conversations telling them how many voters they were winning and what their reasons were for switching. In their other victorious campaign for the selection, they retained the seat of Maywa, where incumbent Green Michael Berkman got an increase of 13%, whilst in electorates like Cooper and McConnell, both suburban Brisbane, they came within 2 to 4% of winning. But what was their best analysis? Yeah, I mean, Amy had definitely built a, a very strong brand and, and like, I think people in South Brisbane love Amy and even a lot of people who still voted for Jackie Trad love Amy. And now that Jackie's gone, we'll be very <laughs> uh, big supporters of Amy. So I think there's definitely that. I would say, however, if we went for a split, it would be more like 
mm, I mean, maybe not the campaign, but certainly the work that the Greens have been doing in the area as a movement, as a party, would probably have made up 70 or 80% of that that vote and Amy the other 20 or so. I I feel that the state strategy and the, and the policy framework and everything that Max had developed was a sizable part of it as well, because I think that it just it just sort of resonated so firmly in the area. And I think that combined with the quality of the meaningful conversations was, you know, the main reason for it. I now think that, it, the, you know, when Amy's the incumbent for the 2024 election, she'll blow it out of the water and have 50% of the primary vote or something crazy. But getting getting over the line against a, a, a powerful Labor incumbent is not an easy thing. But I, yeah, I think it is the campaigning work and it's not just the one campaign itself. It's like three or four years of hard work in the, mm. in the area that that's the main deciding factor our win here in south brisbane has been the result of a massive ground campaign with hundreds of volunteers out on the ground over the last few months having thousands of conversations with people about the issues that matter to them and the result is people are so excited about this Greens vision for Queensland, a vision where we're using our state's immense wealth to make sure we're funding our essential services and offering every Queenslander access to the things they need to lead a good life. Things like 100,000 public homes, jobs in construction and manufacturing, building 100% publicly owned clean energy, school lunches for all Queensland kids, free hospital parking and free public transport. The Queensland Greens have been running election campaigns almost every year since 2016. And Max is actually running again for that federal seat of Griffith, which should be this year or next year. But they don't just roll out the exact same campaign timeline, tactics and narrative every time. Instead, each moment requires a new assessment of their resources, their strengths, their weaknesses and of course the environment that they're working in. We've just gone through the process of doing that and actually we have made some pretty substantial changes already. Uh, and Liam and I have been talking very closely and planning together very closely for the past couple of months. Not The politics itself isn't going to change that much. There's probably going to be more of a focus on billionaires in general, just not mining billionaires. And, you know, there's some political context in terms of there's some policies that are always very popular and the politics and narrative pretty much in the change. But organisationally, we're making some big changes. And the biggest one is we recognise that our model of organising has reached its limit in terms of the number of meaningful conversations we can achieve via it. And this is a model where you put a lot of strain on the central organisation of a campaign. So the organisers do a lot of the work and they mobilise a larger and larger group of people. And, you know, they can only make so many calls and they can only organise so many door knocks. And so the model we've shifted to this time is attempting to run three state campaigns within one federal electorate and much more ba pioneering for the first time, really, like a systematic form of relational organising where we assign a group of volunteers to an organiser in each region. And their job is to take all of those volunteers out for coffee, get to know their life story and slow and help recruit people within their geographical area and create the social conditions on the ground that we have in, say, a really lefty greeny suburb like West End. We want to have something like that everywhere where our organiser, if we ask them, should be able to tell us where locals go and get coffee, where do locals go and get a beer in that suburb. They should. We should have two or three volunteers in that suburb who want to host door knocks for us. And a lot of the work of organising door knocks and phone banks, mostly door knocks, should be done by volunteer leaders themselves, facilitated by the organiser. Essentially, as stepping up a lot, being more systematic and all of that. And that came as, it was actually 
Liam and I sort of dawned on it on a Friday night, like just talking about it. We were like, ah, and there was this sort of Einstein, you know, like not Einstein, we're not geniuses, but like light bulb moment. Light bulb, thank you, Liam. Yeah. It was a yeah. We were exhausted after a day of planning, but and then we were like, "But how are we going to actually do this?" And we sort of tried to visualize because we we're trying to run something triple the size of the South Brisbane campaign this time. And we realized when we kind of thought about it, it's like, well, that's not just um, we can't just push our current model harder. Like it will, it's going to reach a limit point. Maybe maybe we could get it to one point five the time times the size of the last campaign. But triple actually requires a wholly different sort of structural model. So that's yeah. And Max has sort of articulated that. The other thing is to that I think Max identified early on after this election. But I think we all sort of did was seeing the results that the Labor Party managed to get in yes. times of a crisis, it, despite what we know as a slow burn political crisis and a and a growing alienation of everyday people from politics through the neoliberalization of life. I think in, in this crisis moment, people um, pivoted back to trusting their MP a lot more, but particularly funnily enough, it was, it was we saw these incredible swings to Greens incumbents uh, over the last year or two. And we're like, what, why, why is it that these incumbents get these giant swings? And we realized that to some extent, um, part of it is having a kind of a community organizing focus so that the, you know, that, that MP is associated with a, a deeper engagement around specific issues, impl implantation into what remains of civil society groups, even though they're smaller than they used to be, implantation into the small kind of, you know, protest groups around, you know, development or, or like local community issues because there's a limit point of how many people you can swing through one-on-one -on -one conversations there's some people who um it's like you're knocking on an open door <laughs> you know to use a, a appropriate metaphor like they're already ready to vote greens they just need to have that one conversation like there's no there's nothing holding them back from voting for the greens they just need that one conversation because they don't have roots in a some some form of social life that connects them still to another organization, another party. But for those who do, the only way you're really going to win them over is by developing a deeper level of trust. And I think that's the community organizing side of things will come in to deepen our relationship with certain areas of the community that aren't so damn alienated that that just someone knocking on their door is enough to, to flip them. So so there's that's going to be integrated as actually a parallel wing of the future campaign. Um, and if you're listening to this Labor operatives, um, too bad. We're going to do better, better than you anyway. I, I, I like, I'd like to see you. We'll tell you our strategy and there's still nothing you can do about it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um. <laughs> we've, we've long held that, that belief that it doesn't matter. We'll, we'll, we'll publicly advertise our strategy. I don't care if Labor knows about it. They still don't seem to be able to do anything about it. <laughs> yeah, and just to, so and that, just to rip, off, yeah. just to rip off Liam there, like, it was the explicit question we asked in our debrief post the 2020 set election was why is it there were areas where we had thousands of meaningful conversations and our swing was quite small? That's the first time that it ever happened to us. And why was it Michael Berkman got a 13 or 14% swing when his campaign just actually had just the same number of meaningful conversations as say South Brisbane and, we, and they got a three and a half percent primary swing. And like, we, 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 like, it's a lot of reasons. Like it wasn't the difference in the quality of the campaigns for us, it was, the conditions of incumbency, but specifically Greens incumbents who do run a lot of community campaigns. And what we want to do, we've talked about it, we want to turn the Griffith campaign essentially into a shadow incumbent office that essentially runs like an incumbent Greens office, where we employ a constituent officer 
and a community organizer, essentially. So if people have, if our door knocking arm runs into some people who have issues with a local footpath, our constituent officer is going to chase it up and try and get it fixed. If someone has fighting local development, our community organizer is going to launch a community campaign around that over the next year and try and get a victory over that. But it's going to be centered through the campaign. And as, yeah, Liam's already said everything else about it, but I, I feel very excited about it. A final word then from Max and Liam and some inspirational advice for those of us out there wanting to change the world. Look, only only that all the stuff that we've done sounds amazing, but we failed a lot. Like it was really hard. We got really tired. There was a lot of, there was a lot of setbacks. The strategies that we used around like all came, I suppose, from forgetting everything we knew about the left and anything that you had ever participated in before, like organizing rallies or anything like that, and went back to basics about what were the building blocks you could use to win. And I think any set of people can do it as long as you've got an organization, like there's some preconditions, but if you've, if you've found an organization or if you're in a political party or, or a campaign that gives you the space to do this stuff, don't be afraid to just do it and, and don't expect all the results to come at once. And don't be afraid if it starts small. And I don't think any of us are particularly special per se or, or anything like that. It's just that we just hammered away on a strategy for years. And I, I think I actually think anyone in a, their local environment or in their local party or local campaign can do the same thing. Not too much to add to that. I really would just reiterate that point about forgetting a lot of stuff that the the left usually does and actually being comfortable ignoring a lot of it was something that took me a long time to get used to because I had been with the trots for, you know, particular socialist organization here for years and years and years and chased rally from rally to rally. And, and you know, I guess I, I really like this concept for the podcast you've you've set up here because actually thinking about strategy is really paramount i think in all of this having said that i think the strategy just has to be plausible right i think what max has been what max is having spearheaded the first few of these campaigns was very good at doing was presenting quite outrageous goals and targets but then but then but then being able to at least articulate how we could get there and even though we might not have reached those particular ones and now we've become a bit more realistic about all these things um, because we've got more experience the the model of having goals and targets that are rational that seem to have a you know like a a clear relationship between those and the outcome you want a clear way of building to be able to have the capacity to reach all those things those things almost more than fucking anything else have motivated our volunteer base because most people are like fuck yeah well whether it's the greens or like a socialist organization or whatever they, they they get it they get the politics enough the politics is is a smaller i think side of what motivates people they want to know how to win people just desperately want to know how to fucking win <laughs> and so if you can present to them like here's how we're going to fucking win and you do it in a way that is compelling and they can see how their actions lead to an outcome that they want that then build you can build on they're going to get involved and you're going to slowly build that capacity and so picking something you can win and then just Getting people's buy-in on the strategy is more important, I think, than sitting around and nitpicking the politics until it's perfect. Um, so that's, yeah, I, I would end there. And that's really me just pissing on a lot of the trots that I've hung out with over the years. But it's more, 
been a really it's been a big revelation for for me as to okay what's the starting point of building a movement we've got the politics broadly correct it'll be refined over the time but let's not get obsessed with that let's get obsessed with winning <laughs> yeah and don't be afraid of telling people the strategy like i think some people think there's like there's the leadership and then there's the volunteers and they have to be separate. But like, as we alluded to, like, we don't care if the Labor Party or the Liberal Party hear about our strategy because that's not the point. Yeah, and volunteers get hooked in by telling them the strategy, but also then by going door knocking and experiencing shifting a vote for the first time. And if we're talking, we're just speaking to electoral politics here, I'm sure you've had a similar experience, Hugh, is like when you shift your first vote, this is the first time often people involved in left politics have felt a strategy work personally for them. Because when you go to a rally, it's often really demoralizing. Like you go there, you like march for an hour and you're, you go and you're like, what happened? Like, what the hell just happened here? I feel hot and tired and sunburnt. And I feel like actually that was just a demonstration. Oh, just a demonstration of our weakness. But then I remember the organizer coming back on the Cooper campaign, her first door knock and she'd shifted a vote. And she like burst through the door and then ran down the hallway of the office being like, oh my God, oh my God. I just had this conversation with this person, this mom. And then she said she was really struggling. And I said, oh, the Greens want to give every kid free club sport like for a year. And her like, she got all teary and now she's voting for the Greens and I'm teary and I'm really excited. And I don't know, from there you just go, just keep, keep giving people that experience of a strategy working and people are clever and they'll follow you. That's all for another episode of Blueprints, the podcast about political strategies from 1 of 200. We really want the lessons and experience and insights of people who've gone before us to be easily available for those of us campaigning for a better, fairer and more sustainable future. If you've got any good tips on stories you think we should cover, please send us a message at BlueprintsPod on Twitter or Instagram. We've also got our own feed on podcast apps too now, so leave us a review. Next week, how New Zealand teachers want better paying conditions in their dispute with the Labour government in 2019's mega strike.